Abolition. 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 The labor system that took shape in the late 19th century developed coercive means to ensure that cotton remained king. It was called convict leasing. Get arrested on a minor charge or a trumped-up charge, you could find yourself locked up and then hired out to a corporation bidding on inmate labor. The pipeline from prisons to profits in this country has deep roots. The aftermath of slavery was in some ways worse than slavery itself. Unlike before, when someone who owned you, driving you too hard was counterproductive because you would lose your investment. Convict leasing was different. You could get them cheaper, and if you actually drove them to death, there was more where that came from. In the 13th Amendment, which ends the institution of slavery, of course, there is a loophole. Convicts who have been convicted of a crime, they actually can be forced to work for free. In Alabama in 1850, 99% of the people who were incarcerated were white. In Alabama by the 1880s, 85% of the people incarcerated were black. So we could have a debate about how many of those black people were actually innocent, or we could have a conversation about the use of the criminal justice system to target both the innocent and the guilty alike. That continues all the way to the present, where even today, about just under 40% of the nation's prisoners are black, and yet the African-American population is about 13%. They are snatching up bodies everywhere to fuel this system. The idea in which more money can be made out of their incarceration is still very much part of our criminal justice system. Um, I think uh, if one of the things with the 13th Amendment, as with any other provision, it needs the people to step forward and embrace it. And right now we have a very explosive social movement, powerful social movement that's resonating across the country, the Black Lives Matter movement. I think the 13th Amendment is an ideal vehicle for that. People don't tend to think of it because of the victory of the enemies of the 13th Amendment in limiting it to its historical purpose of eliminating chattel slavery. But it's sitting there waiting to be grabbed. to do it. 
And that's what the Declaration of Independence does, as I've explained in my books too, as Abraham Lincoln explained over and over and over again. The same men who wrote and adopted the Declaration of Independence, which talks about the, the, the natural rights, the unalienable rights of the individual, not just white men, not just men, not just white, but every human being, set the stage for at some point the abolition of slavery. This is Lincoln's position. It's my position. It's really the only rational position there is.
You just heard a Max Mix featuring clips from Be Woke presents Black History in Two Minutes or so, followed by quotes from the panel discussion, Slavery versus Liberty, the History and Relevance of the 13th Amendment at 150, by the American Bar, Public Education Division, 2015. And you also heard a quote from In-Depth with Mark Levin on C-SPAN. That Max Mix was followed by the National Prison Strike theme song called Abolish, Abolish Slavery Today. Peace and welcome to Abolition Today, a weekly syndicated online radio program with a specific focus on modern slavery as it is, as it is practiced through the 13th Amendment of the United States Constitution and by for-profit prisons worldwide. We air live every Sunday at 7 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Central, and 4 Pacific. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. My name is Yusuf Hassan, and once again, I'm holding the fort down while my brother and my co-host, Max Parthas, is away working with our comrades at the Abolish Slavery National Network and other platforms to bring more states and organizations into the network. Tonight, we'll play a few parts of Episode 7. We're going to dig into crates again. And Episode 7 was the 13th Amendment trap door, where we became the explainers-in-chief by laying the foundation to everything you wanted to know about the 13th Amendment but didn't know how to ask, where it came from, how it's used, the effect it has on the criminal justice system, what opposition it has, has encountered, and how repealing and replacing the 13th Amendment can make a difference within American society and law. Later in the broadcast, we'll review Episode 10, The Myth of the Sixth Amendment. The fact is that, that it does not exist in reality of one of the pillars of modern legal slavery. We're going to break this issue down for you like a molecular biologist explaining covid so I'm going to play a segment from Episode 7, again, from the 13th Amendment Trap Door. In this segment, Max breaks down for us where the 13th Amendment came from, along with our discussion on his research. Now, this segment also includes the audio from the Great Griot, entitled, Did the 13th Amendment Really End Slavery?, followed by a brief summary of that audio by Max and me. So without further ado, let's go to the clip. Let's start at the beginning, right? So we've already heard the conversation at the introduction of the show, of the program, where they were saying that the aftermath of slavery was worse than slavery. And uh, to repeat it, uh, a system that targets both the innocent and the guilty. So the exception clause in its evolution from 1777 to 1865, a timeline. We started in Vermont, and now we're here. The first one came out in Vermont. That was in 1777. And I'd like to read that to you because it set precedence and showed exactly what the intentions were from the very beginning of this type of language being put into a state constitution. It says that all persons born free, their natural rights, slavery prohibited that all persons are born equally free and have certain natural inheritance and alienable rights, amongst which are <clears throat> the enjoying and defending life and liberty, acquiring, possessing, and protecting property, 
and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Therefore, no person born in this country or brought from overseas ought to be holding by law to serve any person as a servant, slave, or apprentice after arriving at, to the age of 21 years, unless bound by the person's own consent, after arriving to such age, or bound by law for the payment of debts, damages, fines, costs, or the like. So you could be enslaved in Vermont for the like, for fines, for costs, for fees, and that is still mm -hmm. the Constitution today. And then it went on to the Northwest Ordinance, which came 10 years later in 1787, and that was Article 6 where they said, there shall be neither slavery nor involuntary servitude in the said territory, otherwise they're in the punishment of crimes where the party shall have been duly convicted, provided always that any person escaping into the same from whom labor or services lawfully claimed in any one of the original states, such fugitive may be lawfully reclaimed and conveyed to the person claiming his or her labor or service as aforesaid. So they are telling you right there exactly what they plan to use this for, to capture new slaves. And then went on into Ohio uh, in 1806. Ohio was the second state to actually adopt this type of language. And there's included a list of people who are available to be slaves. They say, there shall be neither slavery nor voluntary servitude in this state, otherwise than for the punishment of crimes where the party shall have been duly convicted, or shall any male person arriving at the age of 21 years or female person arrive at the age of 18 years be held to serve any person as a servant under the pretense of indenture or otherwise, unless such person shall enter into such indenture while in a state of perfect freedom and on a condition of a bona fide consideration receiving or to be received for their service, except as before, accepted. They got a lot of accepts in Ohio. Nor shall any indenture of any Negro or mulatto hereafter made and executed out of the state, or if made by the state, where the term of the service exceeds one year, be of the least validity, except those given in the case of apprenticeships. So, yes, Ohio went overboard with their accepts. And number four came in 1861. That was the one that people don't know a lot about, but it was uh, very much supported by Abraham Lincoln, and it's called the Corwin Amendment. And the Corwin Amendment in uh, March 2nd of 1861 uh, would have made slavery uh, break, unbreakable in the Constitution, meaning, let me read it out loud, no amendment shall be made to the Constitution, which will authorize or give to Congress the power to abolish or interfere with any state, with the domestic institutions thereof, including that of persons held to labor or service by the state, the laws of the said state. So basically, they would have made it so Congress could never abolish slavery. Number five came in 1861. That was Alabama. Alabama has basically the same thing in their constitution that the 13th Amendment has. And the 13th Amendment came only a few years after Alabama in 1861. It's what we know today. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime. Where the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist for the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Over time, and long after 1865, in order to benefit from convict lease systems, many states like California, which were not slave states, still adopted that pro-slavery language into their state constitutions. In 2008, Colorado became the first state to remove the exception from their state's constitution, marking 377 years since the first British colony, Massachusetts, made slavery legal in 1641. There are 23 states 
that still have an exception to slavery in their state constitution. And as of this month in 2020, approximately seven are actively attempting to follow Colorado's lead. And there you have it. That's how slavery began through the state's constitution starting in 1771 all the way up to what we have today. Wow, <laughs> Wow. You know, so, yeah, there you have it. Where did it come from? That's the root of it right there. You know, a lot of times people talk about the 13th Amendment. They never even say, well, where did it come from? And what does it actually say? Well, you just broke it down right there. You know, great job, by the way. And, you know, it stays consistent. They keep showing you this is what it's for from the very beginning. This is what it's for. And I don't know how we get to 2020 thinking it's for something else. Right. And once I do my once I do my segment, you'll actually see that that's exactly it. That its intended uh, consequences are continuing and continuing. And I'm going to show the link to where it was separated. I don't want to give it away from my part because <laughs> I hear you on that. I think everybody's uh, because I don't think anyone has ever touched on it this way because it's something that just really came to me yesterday. Like I said, we're about to hit a home run up in here on this 13th Amendment and show people exactly how it works and why it works that way. Harmony, did you have any commentary on, on uh, what you just heard? Um, yes. I wanted to say that makes so much sense uh, when you mentioned Ohio. Um, and it's uh, how it worded the 13th Amendment and its Constitution uh, makes so much sense as to why there is such a high rate of prison inmates in the state of Ohio, um, and just nationally, it just all makes sense. So I just don't understand how people can still deny that slavery has not been abolished, or you know, want to call themselves prison abolitionists, but the root is slavery. So it's like it's a little bit backwards to me. But I just want to thank you again, like, for educating us and getting a little bit more in depth with the history of it all because it's important to know the history of it all so you can understand what's currently still happening today. And I hope more states um, do follow in the footsteps of Colorado. But again, thank you, Max. Appreciate that, uh, indeed. And, and we're going to take it even deeper. You know, uh, we started from the beginning. Like I said, we started from Vermont, and now we're here. So uh, we showed you how, we, how it all began uh, what we want to do next is kind of show you how it all comes together and what the intentions were even further. Um, I did so much research over the week on this particular subject, and over the years I've heard a lot of discussions and panels and such. But only a few people have really described what we're dealing with in the appropriate words and terminology with the right feelings and everything that goes with it. And that's one of those that I know of is the great griot. And uh, this was written by Monty Tano. And you can find her or him at Monitano on YouTube. And the title is, Did the 13th Amendment Really End Slavery? Again, from the great Griot. This is going to take about, you know, 12 minutes, 13 minutes, but it's well worth it. So hang on and listen now. Abolition. Abolition. The 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution ratified on December 6, 1865 is the document that set black people free. It set us on a course of liberation, took the chains off of us, supposedly. 
Have you ever read the 13th Amendment? No. Have you really read the 13th Amendment? Shall we? Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. The 13th Amendment never made slavery unconstitutional. It merely set conditions on how slavery, coupled with peonage, could remain constitutional. After the Civil War in America, the South was left in shambles. The war strategies of the North did exactly what it was designed to do. Destabilize the Southern economic infrastructure and disrupt the normal social structure of whites being in direct control of black and slave labor. So enters a system whereby persons under the jurisdiction of a state can be brought to slave status using a loophole in the 13th Amendment via criminalization. Basically, if you are convicted of a crime, your punishment can be slavery. Oh, but not just that good old-fashioned American chattel slavery. Uh-uh. Out with the old and with the new. This was slavery with a twist. Slavery rental. Convict leasing. Mr. President, I have a brother about 14 years old. A man hired him for me and I heard of him no more. He went and sold him to McGree and they have been working him in prison for 12 months. I asked him to let me have him, but he, he won't let him go. You can't name where I ain't been down. Under slavery, most black crime was punished by slaveholders, leaving the courts to discipline whites. Now, only about 10% of those arrested were white. Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that white people are not committing crimes in the South? We know that's not true. Southern states had a history of placing prisoners with industries that would bear the cost of guarding and housing them in exchange for their labor. Now, states also began to charge fees, renting prisoners to companies by the month. The highest rates were for the strongest workers and longest sentences. This means that states had incentives to arrest and convict as many black males and females as they could round up, sentencing them to be slaves for private companies, plantations, and directly for the state. It took time for the state to realize that prisoners, believe it or not, could be a source of profit. Once that revenue starts coming in, they're pleasantly surprised. This is new revenue we never had before. The state of Alabama earned $14,000 in its first year of convict leasing, 1874. By 1890, 
revenue was $164,000, roughly $4.1 million today. And if you thought that pre-13th Amendment slavery was bad, convict leasing was worse. All these years of how we suffered, we have looked death in the face, worked hungry, thirsty, half-clothed, and sore. We would leave the cells around 3 o'clock a.m. and return at 8 o'clock p.m going the distance of three miles through rain or snow. To describe the conditions in a coal mine at this time, to say that they're primitive, is you can't even imagine it. This is a place where, for weeks or months at a time, men might never see daylight. The mine was often filled with standing water around their ankles and their feet. They had to drink from that water disease ran rampant through these mines. They were incredibly dangerous places to work, being subjected to violent explosions, poisonous gases that were released as coal fell from the walls, in addition to the falling coal itself. Whipping, keeping people chained up, um, brutal kinds of physical torture, and mental abuse are the norm. A lot of the things that kept people in control under slavery are amplified under this convict system. Someone working these kinds of forced laborers uh, would push them to the very limits of human endurance. Because the white lessee was not held responsible for the killing of a laboring prisoner. But even more important than knowing the history of convict leasing is understanding the tactics used to create the continuation of slavery. Here's a short list of what was made criminal for persons of color under the statute in the great state of South Carolina. A colored man leaving his wife. A colored woman leaving her husband. A person of color pursuing or practicing the trade of artisan, mechanic, or shopkeeper, or any other trade or business for his own benefit. A person of color doing business on equal terms with a white person. A person of color working for a white person and deemed by the white employer to not have enough skills and experience for the position. A black person being unemployed. The statute reads that vagrancy and idleness are public grievances and must be punished as crimes. Please note that South Carolina was not the only state with black codes. In the southern states in general, things such as spitting, drinking alcohol in public, being drunk in public, loitering, could result in the African Americans being enslaved for vagrancy. Instead of black labor going to the rebuilding of our civilization, it was recaptured by way of new laws and policies and used to undergird the growth of their economy. With the help of their judicial system, all of these states were direct practitioners and beneficiaries of this new slave system. And the northern states were not innocent in this affair. Not only did they have black inmates laboring as slaves, but the North's financial institutions backed the enslaving industrialists and plantations in the South. In essence, 
convict leasing, along with peonage or debt slavery, served as the post-13th Amendment guide for enslaving African Americans. And this remained the case with the quiet complicity of the federal government until after December 12, 1941, when Circular 3591 was issued. Circular 3591 was a document issued under the order of President Franklin D. Roosevelt to give the okay to start prosecuting cases of involuntary servitude of black people in America. But you always have to ask the question, why? Why, after almost 80 years of turning a blind eye, was the federal government all of a sudden so eager to serve justice for black folks? I'll tell you this, it was not out of the warm humanity spot in their heart that they shared with the black population to end slavery. It was once again a war tactic, a strategy, pure optical illusion. Because having slavery practice on the blacks in the U.S. was a bad image for the propaganda that was needed by the U.S. when entering World War II. The same way that some people live in clutter but they dust off real quick and shove stuff in the closet before everybody comes over? <laughs> yeah. See, we really are democratic. Let's not forget, they also needed blacks to join the military. My prepared text today was to have been Make Thy Name Be Remembered in All Generations. But I think I'm going to depart from my prepared sermon. While I was listening to the sergeant's solo, I kept looking up at our service flag. I was thinking of the men in service. And if you figure that you were safe because Circular 3591 was written in 1941, and that is in the past. According to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, over one-third of sentenced prisoners under the state and federal jurisdiction are black. Not black and Hispanic. Just blacks comprise over one-third of the prison populations here in America. Yet, we only make up one-sixth of the general population. The NAACP reported in 2009 that around 14 million whites reported using illegal drugs, compared to 2.6 million African Americans. Yet, despite this 5 to 1 ratio of white self-reported users to black counterparts, police jailed 10 times more African Americans than white drug offenders. And 59% of those in state prisons for drug offenses showing clear bias in the arrest process and the incarceration process. African Americans were reported to serve as much time in prison for drug-related nonviolent offenses as whites for violent offenses. And yes, if you have loved ones locked away in jail cells today, chances are you are still making your favorite industrialist rich filthy rich. Here are just a few companies who have been reported to utilize prison labor manufactured goods, services, or who have otherwise profited from their financial involvement in the prison industrial complex. The 13th Amendment did not make slavery unconstitutional. It merely created an obstacle illusion. But let's get it straight. 
It did not create an optical illusion for this European government that created the system to run exactly as it does. It did not create an optical illusion in those who carry out the disenfranchisement. Judges, police, prosecutors. And it did not create an optical illusion in the many companies who benefit directly and indirectly from this enslavement. Who it did create an optical illusion for is the millions of us who feel like slavery and racism is a thing of the past. While yes, having more enslaved today than we did at the peak of chattel slavery. But we are just scratching the surface on removing our optical illusions, starting today with the 13th Amendment and how it did not make slavery unconstitutional. It just merely restructured slavery. We have 25% of the world's prison population, 5% of the world's population. Um, so prisoners under the 13th Amendment uh, essentially work as in a form of neo-slavery for about $1.30 a day. The Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC, is snatching up public employees' jobs and they're also hurting small businesses. And ha the, the way that they're doing that is they are transferring jobs over to prison labor. This is literally modern version of slave labor. Abolition. Abolition. You just heard, did the 13th Amendment really end slavery from the great griot written by Mami Tano? Um, I'm just going to pass the mic, man. That's a lot to unpack, but she really broke it down uh, hardcore on that. What do you think? Yeah, she did a great job, great job. I'm, I'm just presuming that it's a, a woman since I was hearing a woman's voice, you know, but... Uh, yeah, I don't know. yeah, I don't know if the speaker and the writer are the same. That's why I was... Uh, in question. That's true. Good point. Well, whomever the person is, I mean, he or she did a great job. I mean, really broke it down, you know, step by step by step. And, and you know, it's all irrefutable and done right out in the open. It wasn't like any of this stuff is just like hidden knowledge. It's there for anybody willing to look, <laughs> you know. It is just that simple, right? Yeah, yeah, done right in plain sight, which, you know, since it's done, I'm sorry, Max, there's one more point that I wanted to make. Since it's done so far open, I just can't grasp how people don't see the connection because it's done right out in the open for everyone to see. So how do they not see that it's slavery? Well, there's some of us who see it, that's for sure, and that number has been growing exponentially. There were some notes that I took down from what I heard. One thing is she pointed out how peonage played a large role, as well as the sharecropping, you know, like they do today, with all the fines and fees. And if you can't pay the fines and fees, the ultimate end is prison, which is where they want you to be to begin with. But in this situation, prison is worse than slavery, as several people have mentioned on these clips already. Then I also noticed that whites, uh, when, it's, when they, she said whites want to be in control of black bodies, it put me in mind, of Frederick Douglass's explanation of the Christianity of the slavehold. And that's what was all throughout the South. So, yeah, they were definitely trying to control our bodies. If you leave your wife, we're going to put you in prison. If you spit on the ground, we're going to put you in prison. If you don't say mister when you're talking to me, we're going to put you in prison. I mean, it was like it was on some daddy-style steroids for sure with our, our bodies. 
and criminalizing us to make that money. And that also, itself, um, I'm sorry. Yes. Go ahead, brother. Interrupt. It's fine. I was going to say, and that in itself hasn't even concluded because we see with all of the uh, barbecue Bettys and all these others who have <laughs> popped up where it's like, okay, I told you not to be here. I told you to leave. I'm going to call the police on you. You know, basically, we're going to call the patty rollers. So that mentality is even passed on, you know, from generation to generation. That for some yeah. reason, that it's in the mindset engraved in the DNA of the United States that black people are, be, are to be controlled by whites. Yes, sir. Um, oh. <laughs> it's okay. Did you have more to say? No, no, because like I said, I don't want to step on my own toes for what I'm going to present <laughs> later. Well, listen, brother, I, I know the research that you do, so I'm kind of setting you up. I'm building up to you, if you feel me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm giving you all kinds right. of supporting information, so when you get there, it's like easy, easy. <laughs> you know, but I'm not going right. Exactly. But, there was a couple of things that uh, more that I didn't notice. One is the type of human atrocities that were going on right here in the United States of America in front of everybody's faces and done upon primarily the black community. You know, we're just saying that it was 143 years and two days ago that they started this system <laughs> when the soldiers left and said, you know, have Adam, do whatever you're going to do. And right. if you heard on the clip, it was just one person explained how they start their day at 3 a.m. and end their day at 8 a.m. working in the mines. You only seven hours left to do everything you got to do, sleep, bathroom, whatever it may be. And they would literally work people to death. And if you remember, one of the women that wrote about her brother, she said her 14-year-old brother. So this was child slavery, working children right. to death right alongside the adults. And that was heartbreaking for me. Also, the whole idea with the black codes that were coming up out of the South, this was all supported by the northern banks. You know what I mean? The northern banks were paying for all of these industries, and, and they were the ones that was running the mines and running the railroads and all of those types of things, you know? And she did something that really made me smile. She did not repeat the fallacy of the average. When she said that one, over one-third of blacks um, make up the prison population, is, is one comprised of more than one-third of blacks, uh, basically, it's 38%. And she said one-sixth of the population. She didn't say 13%. She said one-sixth of the population. But, you know, the truth of it, 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 when you look into the data on race and gender, is uh, 6% of the U.S. population are men, and only 4% roughly are adult men. So you're talking about a 40% prison population coming from 4% of the population as a whole. That's nuts. Abolition. So there you have it. That was a segment from Episode 7, the 13th Amendment Trap Door. If you want to hear more of that episode, you can always go to abolitiontoday.org and find that episode. It was just so much more that Max and I unpacked in that episode uh, one of the things that we always, you know, reiterate, we, we say many people use the excuse that there's nothing that can be done about the 13th Amendment, and they say, well, it is what it is. 
and we say emphatically they're wrong. Well, how do we change the 13th Amendment and make slavery illegal with no exceptions? Well, the answer, if we're dealing on the federal level, it's a constitutional convention or an Article 5 convention of states. If it's on the state level, well, Colorado has already set the pace. You know, they've already shown how it's done. And to date, we have, I don't know the exact number, Max is good with that because he's working directly with the Abolished Slavery National Network. But I believe there are two states that are on the ballot uh, this year, you know, next month, that are going to abolish slavery from their state constitutions, and that's Nebraska and Utah. Well, it could be Tennessee and Utah. I, I can't recall offhand. I believe it's Nebraska and Utah. And then we also have New Jersey, where they are going to add anti-slavery legislation to their constitution. So we're attacking it from both ends. One, if it's if the slavery language is in the constitution, they're they are removing it from the Constitution, and the other one is saying, just so you don't get any ideas down the road, we're adding this anti-slavery legislation. And so one, one will say, well, how will repealing or replacing on the federal level or how will amending the uh, 13th Amendment on the state level affect society and law? Well, here's some answers. One, return of rights under the Constitution as a citizen. You know, it will empower the Sixth Amendment and the Eighth Amendment, and it also empowers the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments. That's just one answer. Number two, it restores the voting rights as citizens. Here's another one. It should end civil death and criminal disenfranchisement. And I say should because we see what's going on in Florida, where the electorate voted for voting rights to be restored you know once a person has completed their their sentence and they've finished off their parole their probation or whatever and now they turned around and said you know the, the state legislators and it's really the governor who really did it where they say okay well you got to pay off your fines first so thankfully, people like LeBron James and other organizations are out here paying off those fines because one of the fundamental rights as a citizen is voting. So it, it's very important just with that alone. And we also say it's a possible end of forced labor for commercial industries in prison. We know corporations like the GEO Group and Corrections Corporation – of America, which is now uh, or Core Civic, you know these are the two main companies. But there are many more companies that run private prisons, and their main commodity, you know these 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 companies are traded on the stock market, and their commodity is bodies. Warehousing bodies, the more bodies they have in captivity, the more their stock grows. And that's not even counting the labor that they generate from these stocks and the revenue that they gain from the sales of the products that are made within those prisons. Here's another one. 
It helps criminalize legal human trafficking by the state and private industry. We have CoreCivic, Eloy, Arizona, uh, as an example. Hawaiians, Californians, Nevada, and soon-to-be Puerto Rican. You know, you have all these prisoners from these particular locations in these states that are being human trafficked and sent off to Arizona and enslaved in the prisons in Arizona. And one of the most important is once that 13th Amendment has been removed, and I spoke more of it in that episode, that's why I encourage you all to go listen to that episode, you can now challenge slave-like conditions in local, state, federal, and even international courts without the 13th Amendment loophole to protect it as an institution. Because, as I mentioned in that episode, the courts have always been of the opinion that, well, we could do something about it, but because there's the exception clause to the 13th Amendment, our hands are tied. That's the position the courts have. So the courts are saying, well, you get rid of that loophole and, you know, maybe we can start looking at these 4th, 5th, 6th, 8th, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment violations. But until then, our hands are tied. So that's just something that I wanted us to review going back to Episode 7. Uh, I want to play a clip for us. This is a little mix that I put together. Just to, uh, you know, I'm here by myself, you know, give myself a chance to drink some water or something. So I want to put uh, together this little mega mix. It's Free the 13th uh, called Corporate America by Jake Skizza. And I'm also going to play, once again, it's one of my favorite tracks, The Amendment 13th Cypher, featuring T.P., Tony Perkins, Ibn Sharif Shakur, Crisis, Chris Gadsden. Keith Chandler, Lorenzo P, and spearheaded by Amended 13th lead organizer, Amended 13th New Jersey lead organizer, and Abolish Slavery National Network member Dennis Febo. So, I'll be back on the other side of these, this uh, little mega mix that I put together. Abolition, 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 abolition. Welcome abolition. to the uh, United States of Corporate Motherfucking America. Denson, Smith Barney, Merrill Lynch, Bristol Moss, Maytag, Craft Master, DuPont, MCI, SBC. When they declared a war on drugs, my nigga, they declared war on us. Drug offenders mean more prisoners. And more prisoners mean more prisons built. More wood, more concrete and iron. More trucks, more gas, more iron. Framers, plumbers, electricians. Consultants, advisors, technicians. More guards, more guns. Pass more laws to lock up more niggas and that's more funds. Now they gotta hire more ones. More handcuffs, silly clubs, and stun guns. See, more calls, more CBs and sirens. Most drug offenders is non-violent. It's all corporate. The state ain't the owner. This prison's brought to you by Tom Warner. Reverse agreement with the United States in right. terms of what they export and where it comes from. But the mere fact that My they say that the 
the tariff um, act of 1930 that said that we're not allowed to accept prison labor produced goods, you know, um, imported into the country. Means it should mean that you don't think it's right. And if you don't think it's right, then you need to look in your own backyard and see what yeah, you're doing. Somebody got to drive the buses out to the sticks. Somebody got to make the ink for fingerprints. So these companies, they donate to candidates. Cash for the ones that's tough on crime in their state. More arrests equal more votes. Pass more laws that hurt more Latin, black, and poor folk. Then cut money for education so they can spend more on incarceration. The company that feds your kids at lunchtime now feed them when they grown locked on the child line. About a half a mil in jail for drug charges. It was only 50 down before Reagan took office. Then he sold guns for dope to the Contras. And crack rock exploded in Oakland and Compton. More gets locked up as expected. This prison's brought to you by General Electric. It just seems like they're they're taking advantage because the mere fact that they don't have overhead in terms of insurance and workers' comp and all these other things, you're having you're getting all these benefits as a result of having the labor. Um, and if you want to say, okay, well we're training them, we're giving them a skill, we're giving back, it would be one thing. But if you're paying someone seventeen cents an hour, that is heinous. It's a come up, a new slave workforce. Just lock these niggas up and make them work for us. And they like to rap about it. That'll work for us. Market them niggas helping slave a new workforce. Dope and guns, guns and dope. Keep them high, no hope, bro. And in and out of code, it's all profit. From the dope to the locksmith. Machine so big, Jesus Christ couldn't stop it. It's a parable. See the Pharaoh, the president. If Jesus came back, they label him a terrorist. I ain't religious, but I read the scriptures. From what I read, Jesus would have been banging for us niggas in that safe. And all poor folk on the struggle, they can lock me up. But the Lord forgive me for the hustle, cause niggas just on some feed, they kid shit. Living in the system brought to you by big business. I call a spade a spade, it's straight up slavery. So-called ended, extended to the third degree. Involuntary servitude, I ain't get it. Sitting two or five with a ten and I did it. I'm in the thirteenth if real freedom exists. Reparations can't give back what I've missed. Home on parole just calculated the risk. So it's back to the blocks with them dimes and nicks recidivism. Trying to paralyze the energy, suppress the ambitions of a black man. Listen, I'm fed up. Still walk with my head up and lead by example. Something most men can't do. That prison labor wouldn't wish that on my worst neighbor. Oppression. In the truest form, results to poor behavior, and it occurs on the norm. Swarm like them bees in the trees to find unity. Empower all affected, let's build our community. CP. Slavery, the 13th Amendment. 96 crime bill, we mostly defendants. Broken descendants, your folk reap the benefits. To humanize a brother so we won't reach the census. Three-fifths is he part of the population? We pissed, we started an operation. Supremacists will argue it's not a racist system while we mass be incarcerated. The facts would be hard to face it. Try to practice the art of patience. Black and brown, we always sanction. Uh, cheap labor need larger payments. Crack era sentence with the lifers. It's opioid and now we got a crisis. Yeah. The American flag should be tagged with three marks of the sixes. Cause they used to hang us in the park by the fences. Don't care about the suffixes or prefixes. Slavery never was abolished, they remixed it. The proclamation was a prop for the clan. They freed us, but with no crops and no land. So they did free labor when they let us see in the can. Cause we were sourced to crime when trying to feed the fans. 
Had brushes with the law, stay consistent. Been arrested 14 times, no conviction. Pugilism came out swinging, Sonny listen. And I represented myself, that boy different. My folks built this country, how we lazy. And we bring in all of the culture, cause we wavy. Me work for 33 cents, you must be crazy. The government wants some of my time, they got to pay me. Michelle Alexander with the new Jim Crow. Saw Abe's 13th and I was like, whoa. Black codes, they weren't codified. Involuntary servitude, I was victimized. So I became the sharecropper. Couldn't pay the fee, live a life of vagrancy. Couldn't pay the debt of a sharecropper. And now I'm in the penitentiary. I need that real emancipation. No slavery, don't exploit my situation. No progress without struggles like growth. In November's ballot question, thanks to FIFO. Hurt the bottom line of them corporations. No more making money off incarceration. I'm in the 13th with no hesitation. So I can talk about my mule and my reparations. Uncle's the father snatched out of the home. Uh, leaving mothers and children all alone. Taking collect calls over their telephones and for... Black people, such a familiar song, not a crack baby, but was born in the 80s. Reagan made a deal to keep my family having great needs. Seven uncles, most of them were doing time. All was a flash before my eyes, we don't say cheap. Got no manners, so most of my homies take pleas. Get released to keep their freedom, gotta pay fees. See the orange uniform is for the worst team. Coming for the bottom, play it off like an AC. Rules like potato salad, man, who made these? One out of every four in prison skin is like me. Decades after they implemented the third. Numb to the pain like we chugging Malibu Bay. ¿Cuál es toda la fiuna de prisión? Te deja libre o te deja dentro de una prisión. Si de cuerpo, de mente o de tu espíritu. Prende, te queda dentro, viene tu luz. Alumbra, ilumina tu camino. Vive tu vida, tienes un destino. Oye, me coge de te consejo. Tú eres libre desde tu creación. Deja que tu existencia y tu presencia y tu tan amor y alumbre la tierra. Y ay, cómo nos vamos a elevar. No hay que sufrir y no hay que llorar. Mantén hacia adelante como un elefante. Palante en la lucha y echamos palante. No es verdad si no es en libertad. No es verdad si no es en libertad. Before Christopher sailed the harbor, the story that he tells, he's a tells of monsters. And even in those tales of his story, they don't never talk about how they came to conquer. What about the Olmecs? Wisdom of the Toltecs. Gold tip arrowheads to stretch them like a bow flex. Powers in the march, the artists in the protest. Jim Crow laws and you can hang them by the throat next. 13th Amendment, the dirt is extensive. Based on principles, some folks be suspicious. Even the school systems will school you to miss this. And this is how I move, how I move with the business. This is endless. Abolition. You just heard Free the 13th by Chase Skizza, Corporate America, 13th Cypher, featuring T.P. Tony Perkins, Ibn Sharif Shakur, Crisis, Chris Gadsden, Keith Chandler, Lorenzo P., and spearheaded by Amendment 13th NJ lead organizer and Abolish Slavery National Network member, Dennis Febo. And I'd like to take this moment just to uh, remind our audience that we're PG-13, but we don't censor anyone, you know, regardless of the track, whether it's an audio clip we're playing or it's some video presentation, whatever it is, we don't censor anyone. You know, we it's we're about free expression. 
you know, Max and I at least, you know, try our best to withhold ourselves. I've been pretty good in withholding myself of really saying some of the things that were on my mind. But yeah, we're PG-13, and I want to say about that uh, corporate America, the way Chase, uh, uh, Chase Skizza broke that down, you heard him mentioning many corporations where they make so much money off of prison slave labor. So you definitely want to give that track a, a second listen. It's free to 13th, Corporate America, Chief Skizza. You can find his information all over the place. Great track that you want to definitely uh, tune into. So we're going to move on because that concludes our review for Episode 7, The 13th Amendment Trap Door. I want to take us into our next segment where we want to review the Sixth Amendment. And it goes back to Episode 10, which we entitled The Myth of the Sixth Amendment. Because most people think, well, we have the Sixth Amendment, the right, you know, the due process, blah, 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 blah. But when we did an in-depth study on it, you'll hear how, yeah, the Sixth Amendment, it looks good on paper, but in reality, it's just a myth. And we're going to go into that myth, and the fact that it does not exist in reality is one of the pillars of modern slavery. We're going to break the issue down for you like molecular biologists explaining COVID, like we said at the beginning of the program. So I'm going to get into a clip called, well, it's actually a clip from the show, and it's going to include Khalif Browder featuring Nadi Lee, Glory Lives, and then Max and I are going to discuss it for a while, and we're going to play a couple of clips during this discussion. One is Unequal Justice Under the Law by the defense attorney, it's discussing the defense attorney's role. Then we're gonna, then you're gonna hear a clip breaking down, and we're gonna also speak of it, the prosecutor's role in slavery, and that's gonna be followed by Real Revolutionaries, which is a max mix, and it'll close out with the uh, documentary called Time: The Khalif Browder Story. So, without further ado, we're gonna get into that, and I'll talk to you all after the video. It's, it's, it's so dynamic. You want to tune in. Maybe even take notes. So once again, here's that clip. Abolition. 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 In May of 2010, 16-year-old Khalif Browder was walking home from a party with a friend when he was stopped by police. An officer said a man had accused them of stealing his backpack. All my people been hurting. Growing up lost, we been broken. I just want to let the world know. Birth to Khalif, got to let the pain show. Every day they judge me by my skin color Modern day slavery, I'm a protester Climbing up a broken ladder All of my peers living life like it don't matter Trapped in a system, can't escape prison Even when you innocent, they don't listen Stand up for your rights, they shooting when we fight Taking away life, bringing darkness to your life Political this, political that They just mad at the fact, they just hate that we black This ain't the plantation, no, you ain't taking us back Malcolm X with the strap, they ain't cutting no slack Instead of giving hope to fulfill a dream They'd rather give us pills for the self-esteem They used to hang us from a tree 
Now we in the box, pissing in the pot. You know what's crazy with Donald Trump calling shots. Genocide, homicide, propaganda, justified. Khalif Browder, suicide. May you rest in peace. Proud of my genocide. We were beaten. We were beaten. Stomped. Fought a lot of correctionals. They taking weapons. They tackled me and myself. They locked me in the cages. Stomped for days. Fly across the country. Dropping grenades. Sacrificed the life so the risk you paid. Underneath the sun, we feel it's the shade. The liquor store. Right next to the church. You ain't never felt my pain. Can't tell me what hurts. You ain't never walked my shoe. Can't tell me my worth. You ain't never been without since the day you burst. I'm talking to my ancestors I'm talking to you slave master Same book, different chapters Same script, different actors Pain is pain no matter how it's measured When you black and shoot the stars and shots get contested It's a cycle for the youth, we gone get neglected So we strap up and shoot just to feel respected Gang pain and life change to feel protected By the system, young black males are all affected We Instagram and Facebook to feel accepted I pray to God, I hope you can get the message. The judge told me if I plead guilty, I will release from jail that same day. But I didn't do it. You're not gonna, you're not gonna make me say I did something just so I can go home. If I gotta stay here five more months just to prove that I'm innocent, then so be it. It's just, it's just heartbreaking, and it's like I felt like they were just playing with my life. What's the solution? Less talking and more doing. A revolution. We the people, the constitution. No more losing. We see now, no more illusion. Who the union? Our school system need more approval. What's the guideline? Show me the design. They shutting down rights for a dollar sign. For that real estate, yeah, we know how they debate. Rich getting richer, more food on their dinner plate. Uh, we should march on LaGuardia. Screaming out loud, we need more housing in the area. That we can't avoid, these type of issues can't ignore Instead of walking past, we should pick each other off the floor uh, We just product of environment Either in jail or die before retirement huh. That's the type of shit that they invent They try to set a superman when really he just Clark Kent I always believed in standing up for what I thought was right And if I would've just been placed guilty Then my story would've been, never been heard Nobody would've took the time to listen to me I'd have been just another I've been hurt all my life That was awesome. <laughs> I mean, like, in the, brother was right on point talking about Khalif Browder, who is our focus for tonight. You know, we're using him as the example of a violation of yeah. the Sixth Amendment to the farthest degree in every way, shape, and form. So that was why we opened up with that. There's also a couple of videos that I put out during the week about this topic that you might want to check out. So you'll find those on our Abolition Today page on Facebook. So make sure you check those out. Again, you know, moving educational things that you need, really need to know. And we want to suggest that you watch the film, which is available now on Netflix. Uh, it's called Time 
the Khalif Browder story. Uh, you really need to see that. And any music that we play here on Abolition Today can be found on our Abolition Today page on YouTube. So just go to youtube.com slash Abolition Today and look for Abolition Music. You'll find it all. Again, our focus today is the Sixth Amendment, and the person that we're really using as an example is Khalif Browder, but not only Khalif Browder, because he does represent what we consider a genocide, as the song was just saying. You know, it's a genocide. This happens to millions and millions of people now, uh, m- many of uh, from people of color, black people in particular. But with that said, let's start out with unequal justice under the law the defense attorney's role. So let's go ahead and get into the defense attorney's role and hear a little bit of information about that. It's going to take like 10 minutes, but trust me, it's all worth it tonight, especially if you really want to know and you're looking for ways to make a difference. So here we are. Abolition. Abolition. Does our criminal justice system truly guarantee justice for all? Not if you don't have the money to hire your own top-notch attorney, it doesn't. Our Sunday morning cover story is reported by Lee Collins. I was looking over the brief. You're about to hear some pretty strong words from this law professor. So strong, they're almost hard to believe. But listen carefully. Of the United States of America. When we uh, pledge allegiance to the flag and we say with liberty and justice for all, that's just not true. I'm sorry. So is the notion of equal justice under the law really just a myth? Oh, I think it is, yes. Unless something changes, we're going to have to someday sandblast equal justice under law off the Supreme Court building because for the 80% of people who are poor, uh, we, we don't have anything that comes anywhere close to being equal justice under law. Shocking, right? His name is Stephen Bright. He currently teaches law at Yale University, but he spent much of his career at the Southern Center for Human Rights, fighting to help those charged with a crime but can't afford an attorney to defend them in court. They're hot, okay, so you know you got to blow them like we do. People like Shauna Shackelford. Is it good? So what did this do to your life? Ruined it. Yeah? Tore it apart. Back in 2009, her home outside Atlanta caught fire. She wasn't home at the time, but she had taken out a small insurance policy on that rental house, and that made investigators suspicious. I thought that it was just a misunderstanding. Like, they're going to figure this out, and it's going to be okay. But it wasn't. Shauna found herself under arrest, charged with arson. My grandma was like, you might need to get an attorney and talk to somebody. Did you have money for an attorney? No. So she applied for a public defender, a court-appointed lawyer tasked with making sure the Sixth Amendment is upheld. That's the part of our Constitution that guarantees any of us the assistance of counsel. The next case on the docket is the case of the state of Florida. It's a right that's been tested in court most notably in a case brought in the 60s by a petty thief in Florida named Clarence Gideon. I request this court to appoint counsel to Unable to afford an attorney, Gideon was convicted and sentenced without one. He appealed, arguing his right to an attorney had been violated, and the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. But while the Constitution may promise everyone legal counsel, it says nothing about the quality of that legal counsel. And that's something Shauna noticed right away. How long did you have to wait to hear from your public defender? Two weeks. And his response was, I got a bunch of cases like yours, so I'll get to it when I get to it. When he finally did get to it, instead of going over the details of her case, Shauna says he simply told her to plead guilty and take 25 years behind bars. 
He said, well, if you didn't do it, then who did it? And I said, I don't know, but I didn't burn it down. And he was like, well, I mean, it looks like you did. He knew nothing about my case when he was talking to me. He was mixing me up with some other case. Like, he had no idea what was going on. Shauna's case is not unusual. Nearly every case, roughly 90%, in fact, often end in a guilty plea. Largely because even if a poor defendant is innocent, most can't afford bail or to wait in jail for trial, which means losing their jobs, their cars, maybe even their homes in the process. Being arrested uh, and spending four or five days in jail uh, can be enough to ruin a person's life, even if they're ultimately found not to be guilty of anything. This is what we call the arraignment. Take the city of Cordell, Georgia, for example. There won't be any evidence presented. Watch how these defendants all plead guilty as a group. Bright calls it the meet him and plead him defense. He'll see a crowded courtroom, and there'll be a lawyer there with his legal pad, and he'll be, Miss Smith, is Miss Smith, raise your hand. And they're trying to identify their own clients. And this is getting ready to go before the judge in just a moment. Have a seat, folks. Be seated. We saw the same thing in a Miami courtroom. Client, all right on the bus. Where one public defender had to handle a crowd of clients all at once. I don't care who the person is. I don't care how dedicated they are. You cannot represent 500 criminal defendants at the same time and give those clients the representation that they're entitled to. Nowhere is the problem of indigent defense more acute than in Louisiana, which has the highest incarceration rate, not only in the country, but in the world. Yeah, hon, this is Rhonda Covington, the public defender's office. Take Rhonda Covington. She is the sole public defender responsible for representing anyone too poor to afford a lawyer in her judicial district. That case was dismissed. That district encompasses about a thousand square miles. Just ballpark figure, how many people are you trying to defend every year? Probably uh, uh, five, six hundred. Every year? Yeah. The professional standard, according to the American Bar Association, is about 150 felony cases a year. And some think even that's too much. Jimmy, you still here? She has two paralegals and two contract attorneys who help with the load, but they're only part-time. I really don't have time to go to the jail and check on it. That's not right. No, I'm sorry, this was filed in the wrong file. Hang on a minute. It's mostly just her and her two cats named Liberty and Justice, by the way. She even cleans the office herself. I can ask the judge to reduce his bond. Some people say, well, any defense will do. And some people think, well, you know, they shouldn't have representation because they've been arrested. My job is not to get people off when they've committed crimes. That's not what I do. What I do is to ensure that their constitutional rights are protected. The bulk of the state funding for Louisiana's public defender offices comes from a pretty unpredictable source. It's traffic tickets, which, out on these country roads, isn't exactly a windfall. Compared to the district attorney's office, what's your budget like? Uh, his is uh, five times, six times more than mine. Out of that budget comes assistance and investigators and access to pay for things like DNA testing. I've, I've gone to crime scenes before with my, my own camera taking photographs. Really? Yes. So each year, it's always something a little less, a little less, a little less. Doing more with less is why she thinks she lost the case for this client. I believe you. I've always believed you. 56-year-old James Waltman. I've decided to go ahead and file a second 
motion for new trial, citing the um, the reason being that uh, we had insufficient funds in order to investigate your case. Waltman admitted he assaulted his wife during an argument, but the state also charged him with kidnapping and rape, sentence-heavy crimes he insists he never committed. Covington believed with some investigation she could have at least lessened the charges, but she didn't have the time or the money. I couldn't shut down my whole office for that one case. You're being, being innocent, I had all the confidence in the world that uh, I'd walk out. But it didn't happen. All across Louisiana, public defenders in 33 of the state's 44 judicial districts now admit they're in the same boat Covington is in. They're simply too busy to ethically handle their caseloads. Well, if you ain't got a paid lawyer, you're going to go through this. Joseph Allen was arrested last year in Baton Rouge for a firearms violation, as well as a marijuana charge. The court didn't even know he was in jail because his public defender didn't know he was in jail. Did it feel like anybody was on your side? Not really, no. Nobody there to sort of help you through the legal maze? Nobody to no, sir. explain the charges? No, sir. I did all that up on my own, reading the law book. Now Allen and 12 others are suing Louisiana's governor and the public defender board in a class action lawsuit brought by the Southern Poverty Law Center. We're arguing that being appointed an attorney who doesn't know who you are, doesn't investigate your case, doesn't come to see you, doesn't take your calls, doesn't ask for a bond reduction, doesn't investigate the evidence, doesn't talk to any witnesses, and doesn't do anything else to move your case, file any motions that are particularized to you, you don't have an attorney. You have an attorney in name only. Lisa Graybill is the Southern Poverty Law Center's deputy legal director. I don't believe in filing lawsuits unless you really have to, right? If there were a way to avoid filing it, we would have. But this injustice has gone on really for too long. It, it's unacceptable. Back in Georgia, Shauna Shackelford spent years researching her case by herself. Her public defender was too busy with other cases, she said. In the process, she lost two jobs and her home. After all, who wants to hire or rent to a suspected arsonist? Had it not been for Stephen Bright, the only person who would seriously look into her case, Shauna would probably be in jail. His investigation, which he did for free, proved that the fire was the result of faulty wiring, not arson. It took him just two weeks to get Shauna's case dismissed. Just two weeks worth of work? Two weeks. That's all it took. Somebody to do a little research and try. All right, come on. It still took Shauna Shackelford, though, three more years to get the charges off her record. But now, with the nightmare finally behind her, she's started anew. Hold on, let's do under your foot. She's opening her own business and no, focusing no, no, on no. being a mom to her two-year-old son, J-Ben. <laughs> you did get justice, but not the way it should have come. No. Or at the price. It was almost like having to give up my life for my freedom and that's what I had to choose in the end. I had to give up so many years in order to get to the point of freedom. Abolition. 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 You just heard unequal justice under the law.
And this is the defense attorney's role being explained through examples right there with the facts about what we're dealing with all across this country. And they used Louisiana as an example, being that it is the prison capital of the entire world. And 80%, well, you know what, I'm not going to get too deep in it yet. I want to go ahead and give Brother Yusuf a chance to speak on what he just heard. Because, you know, I'll be making lists and whatnot. (laughs) Brother Yusuf. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know you get no complaints from me, Max. But, you know, just hearing it from the defense attorney side, you know, and I have several articles that are going to be posted dealing with how overwhelmed they are through all, you know, all throughout the country. But one case really stuck out to me, and it's a New York Times article from 2019. It's entitled One Lawyer, 194 Felony Cases in No Time. And the attorney in the article, his name is Jack Talaska, he, he mentions that in general, uh, based on a workload study, cases carrying 10 years or more should uh, get about 70 hours legal attention from attorneys and mid-level felonies, talking about felonies that are like carrying 5 to 10 years should be 41 hours and crimes carrying life without parole, 201 hours. And he said just on dealing with the case where he needed, where it should get 70 hours, he said that's two years of full-time work if he was just working on that case. And so they just don't have that kind of time. And it also found that where he was, I believe, I don't have the article in front of me, I believe he was in Mississippi, I believe. But two dozen lawyers in his firm on that agency, the uh, Office of the Public Defender or Public Defender's Office or whatever they call it down there, Two dozen lawyers have more cases, and one one attorney had 413 cases. So these guys, and then their supervisors don't allow them to really work the cases like they need. The the supervisors are concerned with closing the cases, closing the cases, closing the cases as quickly as possible. And, of course, we know the quickest way to get rid of a case is through a plea bargain. So that's why... Many times they don't want to put any work in. You know, if you have a de- if you have a defendant where he's saying, "Well, look, we can do this, we can do that," the attorney is always talking them out of it. And just from experiences in dealing with, you know, the system, you hear attorneys all the time. Just they, it's almost like their role is to be the convincer, not to be the defender, but to be the convincer. Convince them that. The deal that's being offered by the prosecutor is the best deal for you, and you stand a better chance of taking this deal as opposed to, you know, effectuating your right to a speedy trial and your right to confront your accusers and the right to call witnesses on your behalf. So, yeah, the defense attorney is the accuser, is the uh, convincer, Max. 95% of all criminal cases end up in a plea bargain. It is literally like an assembly line of flesh where these underfunded, overworked, understaffed public defenders, some who were literally just getting their license that day, defending murderers in all cases and on and on, uh, where they, they, they just, it's impossible for them 
to fulfill the conditions of the U.S. Constitution. And this is not something that's happening by mistake. Again, we keep telling you every week this is not by mistake. So let me give you some data. First of all, let's read the Sixth Amendment. In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed, which district shall have been previously ascertained by law, and to be informed of the nature and cause of the accusation, to be confronted with the witnesses against him, to have compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. So the Sixth Amendment guarantees a speedy trial. You can't be kept in jail for over a year without a trial, allegedly. An impartial jury doesn't already think that you're guilty, <laughs> and that the accused allegedly. can confront witnesses against them uh, and, have, and must be allowed to have a lawyer. The problem is they don't put competent in front of a lawyer there. <laughs> so basically, you know, whatever crumb they offer you is it. As far as the history yeah. of the these plea bargains, plea bargaining took off in America around 1920 with prohibition, which led to a steep increase in the number of criminal offenses. By 1930, the number of federal prosecutions under the Prohibition Act alone was eight times the total figure for all federal prosecutions in 1914. Bargaining with defendants to plead guilty in return for lighter punishment seemed like the only way to cope. Prohibition ended in 1933, but plea bargains did not. Since 1970, when the Supreme Court ruled that they were permissible, they have become ubiquitous. In 1980, some 19% of federal defendants went to trial. In 2010, the share was below 3% where it remains today. That's from the economist.com, the trouble spread, uh, the troubling spread of plea bargaining from America to the world. It's a very dangerous situation, but it's part and parcel of modern slavery and human trafficking. Yusuf? In New York, they have 45 days to indict. And for the most part, there are many cases that do get dismissed because of that 45 days. But the attorneys or the prosecutors always have little tricks of getting around these things that they have to be ready, and that's going to get covered a lot once we start you know, digging deeper into the uh, Khalif Browder situation. But most cases throughout the country, they just have, it's saying, a reasonable amount of time. And see, a reasonable amount of time is not the same. You know, my, my understanding of reasonable could be one thing, and yours could be something completely different. So when you leave something open to interpretation, it's hard to claim any abuse of it because they say, well, well it the, was reasonable. According to the Supreme Court, a year without a trial is too long. And we know that those people have been out in, without a trial for 10 years, 30 years. Cleve Rodgers, right. three years. The brother that we heard in the other video, 30 years. It happens all the time. Right. It happens all the time because it's not statutorily defined. It's not written anywhere that it has to be, with the exception of, like I said, the 45-day rule in New York. But, again, it still gets manipulated because if it wasn't real, if it was real, Khalif Browder wouldn't have happened. So we know that that gets manipulated. And when it starts talking about an impartial jury, I mean, I have uh, – I don't recall if I put 
one or two articles up. One would be from LexisNexis talking about a non-biased jury. Do they really exist? And one thing that it mentioned in there said there are a lot of potential jurors out there who won't admit to prejudice or don't even know they have it. What prejudice is to one person is just a day in the life for another. It's a concept about open to a lot of interpretation. And then another one that mentions, uh, this is from the Washington Post, where it says our jury system is racially biased, but it doesn't have to be that way. It's actually, you know, an opinion that someone put in. There's a law professor put an opinion in there, and he gave the history about, you know, where the idea of, you know, restricting being able to strike uh, jurors from jury pools based on race, you know, talking about the Batson versus Kentucky case. But we know it's all, it looks good on paper, but it doesn't carry out in the courtroom. That's the problem. Everything that's written on paper doesn't transfer into reality. When you look at the right to be informed of the nature of charges. You have so many guys sitting in jail right now that have been in jail three, four, five months who doesn't really understand anything about their case. You know, they get arrested. You know, the the officer, you know, at the station may say it's such and such, but they don't know the full extent of their charges. Then they get taken to the county jail, and they just sit there for months. Just sit there for months. And they finally meet, you know, a public defender, you know, maybe uh, four or five months down the line. And if it's in New York City, that's when you finally get to court. Because, like I said, you know, in some of our other conversations, New York City, when it comes to Rikers Island, it's just a very unique situation because attorneys generally don't go to Rikers Island. They don't go there. So, you won't see your attorney until, you know, a minute or two before they pull you in the courtroom. And the attorney is just there to be the convincer. Hey, the state is offering three to six years. Are you going to take it? Well, I, I think that's going to be the best deal for you. Okay, and the next thing you know, you're canceled going back to the island. You never even went up to see the judge because the attorney went back and told the prosecutor, no, he's not going to take the deal. He's not ready. And then they say – they go ahead and get their adjournment before the people even reach the courtroom. So, yeah, Max, the attorney plays a big role in it. I'm sticking to that side of it. I would like to uh, mention some of the things that stood out with me in the video that we listened to. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. things I thought was outlandish was the group plea, what they called meet them yeah, the and, and plead them. <laughs> so they've got these attorneys that are handling 500 cases a year, and they're meeting their clients for the first time in front of the judge <laughs> and having right. them all plead guilty simultaneously to these plea bargains that they've already set up right there that day in front of the judge with the prosecutor's assistant. It is, it, it, it's an, oh, man, if you want a picture in a semi-line of flesh, you couldn't make it any clearer than that. And although they're, uh, you know, some of them may be in it for the right reasons. They're in over their head. There's not enough money. There's not enough people, and on and on and on. And then also during those group pleads, if you watch the video, you'll see what was unsaid. And what was unsaid is that the faces of the people who were paying the fines or looking to pay bail or pleading guilty were primarily black people. <laughs> and the ones representing on the other side 
people primarily are white people. So the right. racial aspect is very clear right there in the video, even though they chose not to mention that on purpose. But, you know, they didn't mention Louisiana, where 80% of the population are black in their prisons, talking about they have one public defender that covers 1,000 square miles, 600 people a year. You know, that's impossible. You can't, it's not even possible. So that means that people are just falling through the tracks and lives are being wasted and lost. Uh, many of them innocent people who, with the proper counsel, would have never seen a jail cell. So, uh, just rarely, Absolutely. You know? And Max, there's another was, article that I wanted to, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to step on you. Right. Well, I wanted to bring attention was, to another article, uh, New York Times article, which mentioning defendants kept in the dark about evidence until it's too late from August 7, 2017, and it's dealing with cases in the Bronx criminal courthouse. But again, it's not unique to the Bronx. It's happening everywhere where, you know, there's a case, Brady versus Maryland, where the prosecution is supposed to hand over all of the evidence it, it intends to present at trial. But what they do, they found a way to where, you know, they can hold it to the last minute. Most states only require it to be handed over you know, two weeks before trial. And at this point, you know, a person could be willing to fight their case and not really know how much evidence that the state has against them or what the state is intending to present at trial. And they get all the way to the last minute to where plea negotiations are cut off because that's another thing with these plea negotiations. Once a trial memorandum is set or signed by the judge, Plea negotiations basically stop at that point, and now the person is almost forced to go to trial, or the plea goes up if the prosecutor says, well, you know, I offered you six years, you didn't want to take it, so now here we are on the doorstep of trial, you know, I can't do any better than 10. You know, this is what starts nope. happening. There's a clip that we're going to play later, the uh, R&R Law Group where they go into detail, mm -hmm. that's the specific thing right there. They actually have the form in their hand in the video pointing out how the prosecutor said, look, if you don't if you don't plead now, you get this time. If you don't plead right. after going to court once, you get this time. If you don't plead after going to court right. three times, this is what, and it keeps going up and up, which really, in their opinion, these attorneys' opinions proves that this is indeed a violation of the Constitution. They're forcing people to take these pleas. And it's happening 95% of the time. Um, one right. more thing that I want to add about the video, and then I, I want to switch gears into the prosecutors, is uh, that that particular office that they were talking about was financed by traffic tickets. I mean, oh, my God, man. You're, you're robbing these people in order to pay for the defense of the people you're robbing. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's so that? insidious, man. Like, okay, you know, you go ahead and pay, pay that ticket because that's how your defense is paid for. <laughs> it's sick. Of that money, they say that six times the amount they're getting is going to the prosecutor. The DA gets six times the money that they're getting, and meanwhile, defense attorneys are too busy. Right. So, they have much larger staffs, everything. Right. And sometimes unlimited budgets, depending on the case. So let's talk about prosecutors just for a minute, and then I want to get into another audio clip. 95% um, of all elected prosecutors are white. 79% are white men. Three in five states have no black elected. 14 states 
have no elected prosecutors of color at all. It's all white prosecutors in 14 states. Just 1% of the elected prosecutors are minority women, just 1%. And I think I know all of them personally. <laughs> it's only like <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Every day, 9.5 out of 10 people are sent to prison with unconstitutional plea bargains. Innocence is no impediment. When legislators and prosecutors like former California AG and presidential candidate Kamala Harris are confronted with this wholesale violation of our Sixth Amendment right, their excuse is that if everyone goes to trial, it would break the system. Well, break the damn system then. I don't see anyone right. making excuses like that for illegal violations of the Second Amendment, the First Amendment, or any other constitutional right. Despite what they tell you, some things are unacceptable and compromise is impossible. I either have those rights or I don't. Sworn officials are either upholding their oath to protect those rights or they aren't. Start a revolution if necessary. Shit, it's worth it. We're talking about the Sixth Amendment here, which is the pillar of modern-day slavery because it doesn't exist. And I don't know what judge said it. I've been looking for a week and couldn't find it. But he literally said, if you hear or find it, please someone send it to me. The judge said that the Sixth Amendment is a myth because if 95% of all cases never make it to trial, there is not enough evidence to prove that it exists. <laughs> it's really just that simple. So um, we're going to go ahead and do one more audio clip. When we come back, we're going to talk about what we hear again. This is all about the same topic. Stay tuned. We're going to keep it on fire. Soon we'll find out who is the real revolutionary. Justice delayed due to the public defender's budget crisis is not only justice denied, but adds to the challenge of mounting an effective defense. You really haven't had the time to sit down and, and talk to him about the case. Right. You don't even have the case. Exactly. Exactly. And there he sits. There he sits, day by day, sitting in, I keep calling it a cage, but I mean, that's really what it is. He's locked in a cage with no recourse, no way out, no way of preparing for trial. I mean, every day that goes by, there's a potential piece of evidence that's being lost or being forgotten. That could be that one key that frees him. Right? That evidence never comes back. If someone forgets something, that could be the one key to freeing him. I mean, that doesn't come back. Three full years after Henry Campbell was arraigned in this courtroom, a court-appointed attorney filed a motion involving Campbell and six other defendants. It said that Louisiana's criminal justice system was so broken, allowing prisoners to languish in jail for years, allowing others to go months without any kind of legal representation, that it violated the U.S. Constitution. The Sixth Amendment of the Constitution guarantees every American facing trial the right to a lawyer, even if they cannot afford one. The Supreme Court enshrined that right into law with its landmark 1963 ruling in the case Gideon versus Wainwright. One way society meets that responsibility is with public defenders. But across the country, that system is being stretched to the breaking point, underfunded and overworked. We've created a counterfeit defense, and it's only the illusion of fairness. The public defender's office says it's at a tipping point, and the outlook is not good. We want the state to give them public defenders or to give money to appoint lawyers who can represent them in the way that the Constitution demands. We are dealing with a crisis. 
Missouri may well be ground zero, the state's public defender system widely seen as nearly broken. The state ranks 49th in per capita spending on indigent defense. Last year, its 320 public defenders handled 80,000 cases, on average more than 240 cases each. Listen to these lawyers in the public defender's office in Jackson County, the state's biggest district, which includes Kansas City. Most of the overwhelming. Over the next six weeks, I have some very, very serious trials. They deserve a lot more attention than I give them. Mostly all the time. I think I have six murder cases right now. Too many um, for me to be prepared for. But. Pretty much if you ask any lawyer in this office, they'd, they'd say the same thing. Do you feel you're, you're, you're able to give them all the time they deserve? <laughs> uh, I don't know. This is a long answer that you're asking for here. No, is the simple answer. Michael Barrett is head of Missouri's public defender system. Defendants routinely sit in jail uh, for weeks just before they meet their attorney. And we tell them that we are very eager to work on your case. But it's going to be a while because there's an awful lot of people in front of you. In 2016, Barrett convinced the Republican-controlled legislature to spend more money for his office. And when then-Governor Jay Nixon, a Democrat, slashed that increase, Barrett took a bold step. I wanted to bring attention to this matter because so many people were being incarcerated without competent representation. But before I appointed a private lawyer who didn't cause this problem, I thought I'd start with the one person with a law license in the state who could do something to fix it. A bitter budget battle in Missouri going to a new level last week. Missouri Governor Jay Nixon has just been recruited to be a state public defender. And Missouri's lead public defender has ordered Missouri Governor Jay Nixon to represent a poor defendant in court later this month. The court said Barrett didn't have the power to do that, but he had made his point. Now the courts are considering a $20 million class action suit the American Civil Liberties Union filed against the state. The five plaintiffs, all represented in criminal court by public defenders, say their constitutional rights were violated by long delays. Barrett acknowledges that when defenders are handling as many as 200 cases at a time, there's no way they can fulfill their professional and ethical duties to their clients. You have to go visit with your clients. You have to look at the charges that your client faces. You have to investigate the case. You have to meet with witnesses. You have to talk to the police officer. You have to file motions. You have to receive the evidence that the prosecution has and then discuss the evidence with your client. To think that you can do each one of those steps in 150 cases is absolutely ridiculous. As a result, defendants like Ray Shot Ashton often end up pleading guilty to crimes they say they didn't commit just to get out of jail. It's called pleading to daylight. Daylight. Make the case for why a revolution is not what the country needs or wants. We have problems we have to solve now. Now. What's a revolution going to do? Disrupt everything in the meantime? Soon we'll find out who is the real revolutionary. The real revolutionaries. Two clips from PBS NewsHour. Public defender case overload is a ticking time bomb in Missouri, and wait list grows as public defenders refuse cases in New Orleans. And we finish with a 2020 quote from presidential Democratic nominee Joe, architect of modern slavery and genocide, Biden. 
Lucia? <laughs> you know, I also uh, posted the article from the Pulitzer Center, which basically is the the article behind the video, that 10-minute video. And one thing that uh, was was mentioned, you know, in the full clip, there's a there's a part where it says we have created a counterfeit defense, and it's only the mm-hmm. illusion of fairness. You know, it talked about right. how you have 320 public defenders covering 80,000 cases. I mean, that's next to impossible. It is next impossible. to impossible. And then right. not only are the, are the office, not only are their offices underpaid, but so are the attorneys themselves. They're not making a lot of money in the public defender's office. You know, they're state employees. You know, they make less than sixty thousand dollars, which is no money for an attorney, especially the amount of work that goes into becoming an attorney. So overworked and underpaid, you know what that results mm-hmm. in. You've seen the extremes they'll go to. They'll have 20, 30 people they never met before, right before the judge, having them all plead guilty like it's some kind of magic spell they're participating in. You plead guilty, right. you plead guilty, you plead one after the other, like you swear in allegiance to Satan or something. I'm guilty. They're like, what the hell, man? So right. it's in their best interest for you to plead guilty. They don't care what your case is about. They got a thousand more just like it. Just plead guilty. The prosecutor will give you a deal, that it, that, that, and we'll go from there, even if you're innocent. They don't want to go look for exe- evidence. They don't want to uh, talk to witnesses. They don't want to question police officers. That takes too much time. How can a person possibly do 600 cases a year and at the same time uh, uh, fulfill your oaths to defend the Constitution, defend people's rights in the Constitution? You just can't right. do it. Impossible. impossible. Yeah. And one thing that we, you know, haven't mentioned and many people overlook is that once a person cops out, basically all of their appellate rights are out the window. That's part of the plea agreement as well. It tells you right in there, you lose your right to appeal. And so when these plea bargains happen, it's always before there any type of uh, motion hearings, if it's, you know, some illegal search and seizure or some other violation of someone's constitutional rights, they plead you out before these type of hearings are held, and therefore you have no recourse in the appellate division, even for ineffective assistance of counsel, because what happens is the defendant has to present what's called a prima facie case of ineffective assistance, and the courts are only going by what's written. So a person could be sitting in jail, he sends a letter to his attorney, his attorney is not going to write him back because, of course, they don't have the time to write back. The attorney is going to come over to the jail, you know, seeing maybe 40 clients within a 20-minute time frame. You know, it's just really just him showing up. And he's not there to answer any questions. So the person has even a hard time proving that he was ineffectively assisted. Of course, you can look right at it and see it, you know, because – but what happens is when the person goes for sentencing, the judge asks all these questions, and the person is afraid to really say what he wants to say because he's fearful of getting more time. So the judge is going to say, 
Do you plead guilty? Are you in fact guilty? Are you satisfied with your with your attorney's representation? And they're standing there silently saying, yes, yes, yes. And then they get down in prison. They find out otherwise, look, you weren't represented properly. You could do this. And then they try to appeal. And, of course, all of their appellate rights are already gone, Max. Hey, Yusuf, uh, uh, we're going to have a music break coming up, and we got kind of a long clip that I want people to hear. Our three bar agreements unconstitutional tomorrow in our law group. They really go into detail there. But before we get to that point, there was one other clip that I wanted people to hear. Uh, and it is a clip from Khalif Browder. Uh, it, it's the time special that's on Net Browder's story. Um, I pulled out, you know, I, I did a little thing on it earlier this week. It's very powerful to get a chance to check that out on Abolition Today. But he, they talk about the Sixth Amendment specifically and what was happening with him. And I, I think we should play that. So uh, do you want to add anything else, or should I just go ahead and No, by all means. I mean, Khalif is, is the the poster child for the Sixth Amendment breakdown of how we, yes, how we, how we show it, it's a myth. Exactly, exactly. And, and I, I want to tell people some Riker stats when we finish listening to you. So here you go. It's a clip. From Khalif uh, Time, the Khalif Browder story. Right now, in the shadows of Wall Street, in the shadows of the Statue of Liberty, in the shadows of the skyscrapers that run the world media, is an island. There is no distinction between minors and adults. There's no protection against assault where teenagers are being treated like they were in slavery right now. You want to start talking about structural racism? That is a culture, and we've been doing it for years. Rikers Island is named after Richard Riker. Richard Riker was the chief magistrate in charge of the court system of New York City. The spider at the center of a web of bounty hunting rings, kidnapping escaped slaves. Even children kidnapped and sold into slavery. A few years later, and it still happened. I was having a conversation with one inmate, and he asked me, he said, where are all the white inmates? Very seldom did I see a white inmate come through Rikers Island. And if they did, they didn't stay long. Khalif was legally innocent, but unable to walk out that door. We should be torturing people before they're even tried? What country is that? Holding anybody for two years in solitary on a pretrial basis is inconsistent with who we say we are as a nation. Every time with the court, I was expecting to have my day at trial, and it was just, it was never granted to me. You have a right to a speedy trial, and speedy trial is six months. How on earth was Khalif Browder in jail for three years? The Constitution says that there should be a reasonable time between arrest and the trial. But in New York, we have a law that's called a ready rule. Everywhere else basically says if you are arrested, your case must be brought to trial within X number of days. But New York's law 
doesn't say must be brought to trial within X number of days. It says the district attorney must be ready within X number of days. And that makes a huge difference because the way that those days are calculated excludes time attributable to court delays. The court of delay in this borough is worse than any other borough in the city of New York. This is a typical morning outside the Bronx courthouse. Judges are sitting in criminal courts with 100 cases at a time. There are innocent people who spend more time in Rikers than those who are convicted. Khalif was brought to court December 10th, 2010. He thinks that, okay, finally I'm going to trial. I can state my innocence. But on December 10th, the answer not ready. DA's office said they would be ready in one week. However, it was impossible to find a courtroom in a week. If there are no courtrooms available and the case has to be adjourned for three months, those three months do not count against the clock. And so you have some prosecutors who abuse that fact. They come back on January 28, 2011. Again, same thing. They request another week. It was just, we're not ready for trial. We're not ready for trial. He had trial delay after trial delay, had prosecutors knowing full well that they wouldn't get another court date for weeks at a time. They come back March 9, 2011. The excuse that day was there were conflicts in the DA's schedule. Most of the time, those adjournments are for nothing. And it just keeps getting adjourned and adjourned and adjourned. Now it's going on like six months at this point that they say they're going to be ready in a week and they haven't been ready at all. And no time is charged to the speedy trial clock. You go back to court and then you find out that they're not ready for trial and it's just, it's just, it's just heartbreaking. And it's like, I felt like they were just playing with my life. Khalif is sitting in solitary. Prosecutors, they don't think about that. They have no concern about that. He's not even human to them. That's just a fact. There are absolutely prosecutors who act insidiously because the system allows them to. Bronx DA Robert Johnson should be ashamed that this happened under his watch. The real fear here should be that we are allowing people to remain on the streets who commit other crimes. Robert Johnson was the DA for a long time. I think someone in power that long is corrupted by power and becomes lazy by power and refuses to acknowledge the problems and institute steps to address it. The Bronx was a really poorly run county. Rob Johnson was not an effective DA. He was the kind of guy he'd offer you as many years as he could, even if you were a decent kid. Prosecutors left Khalif in circumstances at Rikers Island that would break anyone, saying, I bet you we can get Khalif to plead guilty without letting him out. That is a very simple calculus, and it works. Almost everybody pleads out, not because everybody's guilty, because people crumble under the pressure. You want me to just plead guilty to something I didn't do? It was more personal to me, like, no way, I'm not, I didn't, I didn't do it. He demanded his day in court, and they were going to punish him for that. 
Mr. Cleefrider's story uh, available on Netflix now and really drove home what he was dealing with. That six, not only a Sixth Amendment violation, but also an Eighth Amendment violation because it went hand in hand. Uh, they refused to give him his day in court, as clearly said. And they also put bail way above what his family could afford. And so a 16-year-old boy goes into an adult prison, which is a hell on earth, spends two years in solitary confinement, is abused by both the guards themselves and the prisoners as well, and then is held without a trial for three years as they purposely move his date over and over again to what they call bullpen therapy, where they make your life a living hell in order to force you to take this plea bargain. And like a warrior, he refused. But there came a point towards the end where he, he just couldn't take it anymore, and it cost him his life. Abolition. Abolition. Man, oh man, oh man. We covered so much in that episode. I tried to squeeze in as much as possible, even to the point of changing up how we close out the show. You can find that episode and archives of all our broadcasts at abolitiontoday.org. You can also find them on wherever you listen to your podcast, whether it be Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Cast FM. Don't forget to tune in to Live from the Plantation that airs at 7 p.m. Central every Thursday night right here on Abolition Today. This program is completely run by those in prison. You can hear their voices speaking on various issues such as prison slavery, human rights violations, and their organizing efforts across the country to end these crimes against their humanity. We'll be back October 11th, inshallah, God willing. Until then, remember to join the movement to abolish slavery at abolishslavery.us. And subscribe to our Abolition Today YouTube page for all the news, information, and music you hear on this program. Live streams and archive podcasts are available at abolitiontoday.org. And once again, all of our fa- all of your favorite podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and CastBox. Uh, we're short on time because I wanted to play as much of that episode as possible, but I want to Leave you out with uh, Land of the Free by Esperanza Spalding. Until next week, think about abolition today. Peace and blessings be upon you all.
unbound the praying hands of each innocent woman and man in these lands of abolition. 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 Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.